Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Dorora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Back with us is John Melrod to uh, finish our our conversation, uh, John, about uh, misogyny, white supremacy, the unions, and um, America, I guess. Uh, You went to the University of Wisconsin. That's a bastion of liberal thought. Uh, Is that where you got a lot of your ideas, or were you uh, an activist before going to college? Well, first off, thanks for inviting me back. I appreciate that. And... My ideas really began to develop way before the University of Wisconsin. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s. And as a kid, you know, I had these perceptions of a deep unfairness. It was really a segregated city at that point, apartheid-like city. Hmm. You know, I mean, I can remember little things like when I would get on the bus, it would be air-conditioned. But the buses outside of the Northwest Quadrant, which is where all the better off white people lived, had no air conditioning. Or when my father would take us for a drive out into the country in our old um, Impala Chevrolet, I saw for the first time black chain gangs, you know, working on the side of the road, you know, with, you know, big white overseers with long guns pointed at them. And most importantly, In 1960, when I was 10 years old, we used to go to the Glen Echo Amusement Park in Maryland. And students from Howard University, the the largely black school in DC, had set up picket lines to integrate the Glen Echo Amusement Park. And there was huge pushback and violence from the whites who were rural Maryland And at one point, there was an attempt to integrate the swimming pool and the, you know, some of the whites had thrown bleach in the pool so nobody could use it. And as a kid, you know, these things registered that there seemed to be this really fundamental unfairness that I that I was living living in. And when I was in high school. In 1964, they, the KKK murdered three civil rights workers who were registering blacks to vote, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, Goodwin. And that, I said, I have to do something. You know, they're only a few years older than me. And I went to work in 1965 in the summer at the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was part of the larger civil rights movement. So that's where my activism really kicked off. But of course, when I was in high school, the Vietnam War was really beginning to pick up steam. And in 1967, there was a national movement to shut down induction centers to protest the war. So I was in school up in Vermont at the time, and we filled a van load of high school students to go to Manchester, New Hampshire, to block the bus of inductees. 
And we went and lay down in front of the bus, which didn't stop. So we got up and got out of the way. And I said, well, I don't know about this nonviolent stuff. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, it didn't seem like it was very effective. But in any event, but I did go to Madison because I knew it was the heart of student young rebellion. And I wanted to be there to be part of that. So that's why I ended up going there. Beside the fact that Columbia didn't accept me. <laughs> you, uh, you talk about um, the uh, Kent State uh, killings in your uh, book. And um, I have a somewhat of a connection to that because the first law firm I practiced, uh, our senior partner, Mr. Brown, defended the governor and the National Guard in the uh, lawsuits that followed. Wow. And we probably had every piece of paper deposition in, in our archives at that firm that if somebody, and I know there's been tons of books on it, but, you know, um, I remember Mr. Brown telling me they interviewed everybody. They took hundreds and hundreds of depositions. But what was your in, involvement uh, there um, after the uh, the Kent State killings, John? Well, you know, it's, it's one of the things I thought back with fascination was the Kent State killings took place on a Friday, if I'm correct. And it was the National Guard shot into the group of students protesting and four were, were um, killed. And somehow, without social media, without cell phones, without fax machines even, 200 colleges were on strike Monday morning across the country. And in Madison, we had done years of what I call, said before was very patient organizing. We, had, we went into the dorms two nights a week to organize, to go room to room, talking about the Vietnam War, why it was wrong, why so many U.S. boys were losing their lives over and, you know, an unjust fight, why so many Vietnamese were dying for no, you know, because of imperial interests by the United States. And it had been years of education. So when Kent State happened, the university just was like a wave that all of a sudden swelled. And there were marches of thousands and thousands of students and we shut the university down. The strike was extremely effective. They brought in the National Guard. They couldn't open up the school. The teaching assistants went on strike. And then the faculty voted to cancel all final examinations because it was near, it took place, I think the shootings were in May and that's about the end of the school year. So they basically wrote off the school year but it was a pretty violent reaction on the campus to those killings because there was really a feeling among us that they were our people that had been shot down. They were just like us. It could have been us. And that we had to do our utmost to stand up and make known our anger at that, the fact that that had occurred. Um, so, it was, it was, you know, we joined a United, uh, United Front. I was in an organization called the um, Mother Jones Revolutionary League. Mother Jones was an old um, 
organizer among coal miners, quite a figure in American history. And we joined a coalition of some 20 something organizations, all the way from Quakers and, you know, sororities and fraternities against the war to, you know, us, the Mother Jones Revolutionary League on one end. And we planned out and coordinated those activities. And I also joined the labor committee of that, which was one of my first times beginning to look toward labor and the working class as a very important force that could change society. And we had 18 sites that were either hospitals or factories that we went out to and, and put out flyers talking about what had happened. And at one of them, there was a big Oscar Mayer plant there. And some stewards came up and said, hey, let's organize a rally after work. And we got really excited. Well, what happened was that top of their union and the management said anybody at that rally is going to be fired. And in those days, you know, things people didn't weren't ready to cross that line and say, to hell with you, we're going to do it anyway. But that was one of the orientations to get that positive reception from so many workers who had turned against the war. It was way after the time of hard hats attacking student protesters in New York City. And, the you know, the pendulum had shifted, you know, and most working class people opposed the war by that point. Um, and that made me understand, in my mind, that going into the union and going into the factory as an organizer, there were a lot of a lot of things that you could accomplish, a lot of changes you could make, and a lot of people that you could, you know, educate and bring forward to take positions that they might not normally have ever considered. I was curious about how you ended up um, working at the, in the auto industry and working on the assembly line, if that was out of necessity because you're now graduated from college and need a job, or if you sought out that industry to further your activism. Well, I have to be honest, it was a little bit of both. I mean, we, we were, there was a group of about 20 of us who had all uh, agreed that we would go into working class communities and factories to organize after we left. But there were also no jobs available, to be perfectly honest. And I left off my application that I had gone to the University of Wisconsin. And because they didn't, I mean, I was afraid they wouldn't hire me. What does a college graduate want to be on the assembly line for? Even though it was the best paying job in the city of Milwaukee. And when they fired me, the judge for the National Labor Relations Board ruled that the failure to put my college attendance on the application was a mere ruse for firing me from my protected union activity and ordered me to be rehired. And just in a shocking, it's on my website. If people go to my website, www.jonathanmelrod.com, there's a lot of documents there, including FBI files, because this was during the period of COINTELPRO when the FBI was really, you know, tracking and making life difficult for activists, particularly black, but for all activists. I got a question. I don't, maybe I'm asleep at the switch here, but I don't see that same level of activism today. 
No, you're right. It's not. Um, you know, I, I it's not, but I'm encouraged. Since I put the book out, the book, you know, I said it on our last week's episode, is Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. And if you put in pmpress.org, which is the publisher, and put in the discount code in capital letters, fighting, you'll get a 40% discount. But the people who are primarily buying my book are young newly minted organizers who work at Starbucks, Amazon, Trader Joe's, New Seasons groceries up in, in Portland, a grocery store of eight chains. This is a whole new young generation that wants to change the world, and they're doing it by building unions in non-union industries, such as retail. By the way, Starbucks has been in the news a fair amount, and in the news you hear about Starbucks, that in terms of the corporate aspect, it's less than flattering. Well, it really is less than flattering. They've got, I mean, if people were to examine their track record, the other day the National Labor Relations Board consolidated a lot of the cases from around the country to a single unfair labor practice case because they have committed so many, it's, I think it's in the thousands, I, I believe, of unfair labor practices where there's been complaints filed at the labor board against them for wrongful firings. Over 100 organizers have been fired. And, you know, they really have become a leading force. They hired a law firm, Littler Mendelssohn, which is the country's premier what they call union avoidance law firm, which is really union busting law firm dressed up as a pig in lipstick, as was once popular. And, that's and, a, and, and that explains why the coffee is so expensive. Well, there you go. And they haven't even, they're not even paying union wages yet. <laughs> they got to pay little or Men Mendelssohn, for goodness sake. Well, John, I... I saw uh, when I was reading, again, excerpts of your book that you went to law school uh, also. Did you uh, practice law at any time? I did practice law. After, in 1985, Raynaud basically indicated they were going to close the factory. And I decided I was only 35. I wish I could be 35 again, but I was 35. And I still had the opportunity to you know, chart out another career. And I decided that the law could be something where I could use professional skills to continue to help people. So I, I attended law school in San Francisco. And relatively soon after I got out, I joined with a partner and we formed an immigration law firm representing refugees and political asylees. And that actually developed into the largest law firm of its sort in San Francisco, which is saying something because San Francisco is the heart of sort of the immigration mm -hmm. movement. And it was a really worthwhile experience representing people who had been persecuted. And it's we don't have the time. Maybe some other day we'll talk about it, but just viciously persecuted in Afghanistan by the mullahs in, you know, in Pakistan, 
by the Muslim Brotherhood, mm -hmm. you know, people that were really in need of asylum, that had real cases where their lives were in danger. So we were very successful. We won some 80% of our asylum cases, and the national average is only 33%. And it had to do with really a lot of hard work and preparation to present those cases to um, immigration judges. So I did that initially. Then I founded a record label with some other young guys, 35 being young, even 38 being young. And, uh, you know, we, we founded a record label that put out music, was called Rock en Español. It was Latin rock, but it came from Mexico and Argentina from the late 60s. In 68, there had been both a massacre of students when the Olympics were being held, a couple hundred students were shot down and killed by the army and Argentina, the dictatorship had taken over. So in both countries, music was the voice of protest because you couldn't go out into the streets without being killed. So we signed bands in California that were playing that music. And it was really a great experience. I mean, now I'm a, I got a jack of all trades. I mean, I've put in seatbelts on the assembly line. I've, you know, produced music. I've defended refugees. So, you know, I've had a lot of hats I've worn. It's pretty remarkable. And now I'm an author. <laughs> right. I was, I was thinking that how remarkable it is. College degree from uh, University of Wisconsin, assembly line worker, then to lawyer, music producer, uh, publisher, uh, John, we're blessed that you're still here to share your experiences with us. And um, I hope people will read your book, become uh, inspired to activism. Thanks for uh, joining us. Well, thank you both. I really, I had a lot of fun. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Our thanks also to WOSU and our sound engineer, Dalton Jones. If you like what you've heard today, please tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back in another week or so with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.